steeped in folklore, mythology, and stories of the unexplained that date back to Roman times, nowhere offers more tales of the unknown than this frightened kingdom. Good evening and welcome to episode two of Frightened Kingdom. I'm your host, EJ, and every fortnight I'll be exploring tales of the unexplained from Britain, with your help. As we go forward, it's my intention that this podcast will consist mostly of your stories, whether that's ghost stories, cryptid sightings, UFO experiences, or anything else that falls within the realm of the unexplained. However, though listener feedback on my first episode has been wonderful, and I am so grateful to you early listeners who tuned in to episode one and took the time to let me know that you enjoyed it, connect with me on social media and rate and review, what I am finding is that a British audience is not the same as an American audience. We are shy about sharing our stories on this island. Submissions have not been forthcoming. So, once again, this episode's tales will be a mix of listener-submitted stories and accounts sourced elsewhere, aka from the internet and beyond. Thank you so much to those listeners who have taken the time to send me your stories, and let me once again ask you to please do keep them coming to frightenedkingdom at gmail.com or go ahead and make your recordings at speakpipe.com forward slash frightenedkingdom. Frightened Kingdom is on social media, so if you like what you hear today, please connect with me on Frightened Kingdom Podcast on Instagram, Frightened Kingdom Pod on TikTok, Frightened King on Twitter, and please like our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Frightened Kingdom Pod. I have a pretty demanding full-time job, so I'm not as active on social media as I would like, but I will, at the very least, share new episode announcements via these accounts, and hopefully some extra tidbits, as well as the occasional glimpse behind the frightened curtain. And of course, please do rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that I can justify buying a proper microphone. And now... On with the show. This episode is an episode of two halves. First, I'll share some listener stories and internet source tales. In the latter half of the episode, we'll learn about a rather dubious 16th century case of demonic possession with ties to the famous Pendle Witch Trials. So far, our listener submissions have been dominated by an overwhelmingly ghostly theme. And why not? Ghosts are, after all, what Britain does best. So, for the first half of tonight's episode, we'll stay in the spirit realm with some haunted houses and ghostly occurrences from our listeners, Reddit, and beyond. First, I bring you a story from Kim H., who you'll remember from our first episode. She described an eerie, unidentified presence in a rundown student house. In this story, she shares a short but sweet encounter she experienced in Shrewsbury late last year. Kim writes... In 2022, I met a friend for afternoon tea at the Ten and Six Bar in Shrewsbury. I hadn't been before, but loved the appearance of the old building. Our food and drinks arrived. Uh, I had an Earl Grey, which was in a tall glass teapot. After pouring some tea, my friend and I caught up. We were mid-conversation when I saw the teapot move across the table. I looked at it, confused, and then looked to my friend, who had also seen it, and looked back at me, equally confused. I assumed she'd accidentally kicked the table and asked if that was the case, but she said she hadn't. I checked to see if the table was unsteady, but it wasn't. 
Finally, I figured it must have been condensation from the heat, but when I lifted the teapot to fill the table, it was dry. After debunking all of my logical explanations, I shrugged and said to my friend that maybe our ghost friend fancied some tea. We laughed it off and continued our conversation. Later that day, I tried to find out some information online about the building and came across a leaflet of ghost stories located at buildings in the local area that was designed for Halloween some years ago. I found 10 and 6 listed with a story about a ghost called Emily, who is known for playing tricks which include moving things, knocking over glasses and banging doors. After reading this, I was convinced that the moving teapot must have been her work. Okay, so this story won't give you chills, but it is quite good, isn't it? Nor perhaps I'm biased. It's not so often I come across a ghost in my local area who also happens to share my name. That's right, the E in EJ is Emily. Don't tell anyone. My favourite thing about this submission is that Kim really went out of her way to debunk this, saving us all the trouble of suggesting the supposed ghost could have been condensation, a kick to the table leg, or an uneven surface. However, as much as I hate debunking things, I do wonder, although the table was straight and steady, was the floor? If you're not familiar with Shrewsbury, uh, Google 10 and 6 on Mardol. You'll see it's in that class of late Elizabethan, early Jacobean buildings that was definitely built without access to modern measuring tools or spirit levels. Pun unintended. What I mean is, it's distinctly slanted. And the street it sits on is also on a bit of a hill, if not a steep one. Having grown up in a very old house myself, though not quite 1600s old, I can tell you that a slanted floor will cause items sitting on otherwise steady-seeming tables to roll or slide from time to time, even if the slant of the floor is imperceptible most of the time. I'd be curious to know whether the floor in the modern refurbished 10 and 6 tea room has been levelled or left at a little bit of an Elizabethan slant. In fact, I'm going to check that out myself next time I'm in Shrewsbury. I'll report back next time I come to you on whether my hunch proves true, or, indeed, if Emily the ghost recognises a namesake when she sees one. Our next story is from Reddit user Rice London, reporting their experiences in what is by contrast a relatively modern house in Hampshire in the early 2000s. Rice London writes, Before I moved to London, I used to live in a 1950s built house in Hampshire, UK. My parents had purchased it in 1999 from an old couple who had lived in it since it was built, so no one had died in it. The first strange thing that happened was the cats would not stay in the house. They would always bolt out for some reason. After my parents started renovating, my brother and I both started to feel like we were being watched in the house. And at night, in the living room, you would always feel like something was watching you through the new glass doors from the hallway or the stairs. After a while, if we were sitting downstairs, we started to hear footsteps moving from my bedroom in the room above to my brother's neighbouring room, then across the landing to the hallway to my parents' room. My parents both dismissed it as the pipes cooling or the floorboards settling, but you could distinctly tell exactly what boards the footsteps were treading on. At one point, friends came over to visit me. I was alone, 
and as you walked down the street you would see into our living room. When they arrived, they asked if I had relatives staying, as they had seen people sitting on the sofa. Things also started to move. You'd place shoes by the door, and then they'd be under the stairs, or things like keys would be moved somewhere else. Then it gets really creepy. One day, I had run a bath and was listening to music on the computer in the study in the next room. It had been a while, I'd been soaking, and the music had stopped as the PC had gone into standby mode. I'd been in the bath about an hour and fell asleep, and just as the water went past my nose, the music on the PC shot back on, louder, and woke me up. Bear in mind that in those days you had to mash the keyboard or really jiggle the mouse to wake up the computer. This saved me from potentially drowning. I took this to mean whatever was in the house wasn't bad. However, a few weeks later, I woke up bolt upright. It must have been around 2am. My door was open onto the landing, and it was a bright full moon, shining through the hallway onto the brick landing. I looked, and to my terror, I saw an old man, but he wasn't standing up. It was as if he was lying down on the stairs, with his head at foot height, staring around the landing wall directly at me. The moonlight was on his face. It haunts me to this day. I closed the door and slept with my light on for the rest of the night. My parents sold the house in 2004 when they moved to New Zealand, and when I spoke to my dad about it later, he said he knew something was in the house but hadn't wanted to scare my brother and I. He'd had his own experiences. He'd heard the same footsteps on the floorboards, and in the mornings, when he'd get up and make tea for mum, he'd hear footsteps behind him in the kitchen walking towards him, something brushing past him, and the taps would frequently turn on by themselves. Years later, when I told him about the old man I'd seen, he said that on a few occasions he'd been in the lounge at night, and in the reflection of his reading glasses, he would see the exact same old man sitting in the armchair behind him. My dad is a massive sceptic, a policeman back in the day, and now a no-nonsense project director, and apparently he was so freaked out that he went to the public records office to see what our house had been built on. The area had been made up of old mansion estates back in Victorian times, and it looked like our kitchen had been built over a pathway which led from the big house to an ice house. He thinks that maybe what we saw were the servants, or whoever had walked that path day after day. Okay, the mental image of that old man on the floor with his head poking over the top of the stairs, just shining in the moonlight. Oh, God. Oh, no, I hated that. So, naturally, I knew I had to share it with all of you. I don't have any satisfactory theories for this one. It's just a good, classic haunted house tale, isn't it? And the usual haunted house speculation does come to mind. Sleep paralysis, carbon monoxide, old house noises, a little bit of collective hysteria, the ever-controversial stone tape theory. None of which quite cuts it when you have this many occurrences involving this many people. If the family shares a delusion, how do we explain the figures seen by the friends from outside the house? If this is carbon monoxide poisoning... How do we explain the intervention to save the storyteller from drowning? If this was sleep paralysis, how would any of those waking occurrences and the father's corroborating reports play into that? No, I can't explain this one and I like it, 
I wonder who lives in that house now? Sadly, we don't have a name or an address, so I can't do any digging. But if anyone out there listening tonight just so happens to live or know somebody who lives in a haunted 1950s build in Hampshire, do send us a message. Our next tale comes from a listener in Wales who asked to remain anonymous. In the 1990s, when I was a child, I lived in the countryside in Wales, in a very rural area without many neighbours, with very quiet roads, lots of wildlife, etc. Pretty much all but the coldest parts of the year, my best friend and I would spend our weekends and holidays playing in the fields around my parents' cottage. We didn't have much money, so we didn't have much else to do but run around the fields or sit and chat in the fields. We'd often take our own picnics up onto this hill behind the house, where lots of the stone used to build my parents' house, which was perhaps 150 years old, so quite old but not ancient, had been quarried from, as well as the stone for a few more of the area houses. This is a very steep hill in a sheep field, covered with rocky outcroppings and gorse bushes, and coming up to a ridge with a line of blackthorn trees across the top, before sweeping sharply downwards into another field. Just on the other side of the ridge of this hill is a little gathering of plum trees and hawthorn, not thick enough or enough of them to make a woodland, but just a little patch of trees. It's a really beautiful place, and I always got kind of a magical feeling from it and called it the fairy wood when I was a kid. It had two big rectangular shapes cut into the ground, not fresh holes, but long since filled in with grass, with sort of very rough stone steps in the side. My parents thought that these must be the places the stone for the house had been cut from, and the steps were hacked into it to make bringing it up out of the hall and down the hill easier. My friend and I used to sit on those steps and chat for hours. I would get an eerie feeling there at dusk, but everywhere gets eerie at dusk, so I didn't think much of it, until this occurrence when I was about ten. On this day, my friend and I were sitting on the steps in the middle of the day, it can't have been later than noon, on a bright, sunny summer day, talking about school and picking at the moss on the stone. There was nothing unordinary about this day. Then, all of a sudden, I very clearly heard the words, What are you doing here? Go away! said very quickly and very loud. It sounded angry, a bit like a shriek, if a shriek could possibly have been that close to my ear without deafening me. I looked at my friend. She looked at me. Neither of us had to say anything. We were both absolutely terrified, and the next thing I knew, we were running full speed down that steep hill. I don't think either of us had ever moved so fast in our lives. I went flying, and I'm not sure if I was pushed or slipped. All I know is that halfway down, I landed face down in the grass, scrambled to my feet, and kept running. Neither of us stopped until we were back inside the gate to my garden. I never had another experience like this in any of those fields, but I was really freaked out by that place from then on, and my friend and I found a new spot to spend our time. We never hung out in that hollow with the steps again. Even walking past that little gathering of trees with my dog gave me the creeps for the rest of the time I lived there. I might never have thought about that again, but a few years ago, I was feeling nostalgic about the area and doing some research on its history. I was actually trying to find the record of a Jacobean hall which used to be in another part of the countryside near us, but while I was searching, I stumbled on the fact that this hill wasn't just quarried for stone. It was, for a short period in the 1800s, a manganese mine. I have three theories for what I heard, both of which probably sound crazy. One, 
The spirit who screamed at us that day thought we should be working. Uh, mines often use child labour, and I wonder if we seemed like two slacking kid miners to an 1820s mining manager who perhaps didn't realise he was dead. Two, whatever it was is simply an angry spirit, something left behind by the mistreatment of the kids forced to work in mine conditions. Or three, my favourite theory, whatever presence made that patch of land feel magical, and I do believe there is magic in very rural places of the very old fairy kind, it saw us revisiting the same little quarry pit day after day, bringing our packed lunches and picking at the moss, and it thought that we were going to begin digging up its land again. So it frightened us off. If that is the case, I hope it knows by now that I would never do anything like that, and if anyone else tried to dig up that beautiful patch of land, I would fight them. This is exactly the kind of story I want submitted, and thank you for sending it in. Uh, I also love that third theory. Um, I love anything to do with fairy lore, and I think that's such a romantic idea, that your presence in the area and the slight similarities in the way you are interacting with the ground sort of triggering this trauma in the land. Um, in terms of debunking theories... Kids are very weird, and I suppose this could have been a moment of shared imagination, a sort of folie à deux sparked by your closeness and the apparent magic of the location. I'm not sure, though. It's very easy to dismiss people's experiences with terms like folie à deux, but actually, cases of that psychological phenomenon are quite rare, and it feels a bit like grabbing at straws when every corroborating witness report of something paranormal is blamed on one rare psychological phenomenon. Especially given that folie de doesn't usually present as one isolated episode of psychosis, and what's more, is most commonly reported in couples or groups of people who are under high stress. While childhood is very stressful in lots of ways, it doesn't sound like you were undergoing a particularly difficult time on that day. Of course, if you were, I'd love to know. It changes things slightly. My other theory is a bit more mundane. In the countryside, and I grew up in rural Wales myself, sound seriously travels. For town dwellers, this will be hard to comprehend, but if you are placed high up in hilly countryside, in the right conditions, it is entirely possible to hear loud music being played, car horns honking and trains passing in a town about four miles away. It is possible that you heard a snatch of a nasty argument in a neighbour's garden, carried on the breeze to you and your friend to scare the living crap out of you. Unfortunately, that seems quite likely to me, but I do hope that isn't true. Uh, it's nowhere near as good as the fairy theory, which I love. Thank you. Next, we have a very unsettling story from Reddit user Equivalent Release 79. When I was between 9 and 11 years old, my family owned and ran a corner shop in the UK, a small local shop. It was in a very old building which had a previous incarnation as a pub and a boarding house. From the day we moved in, my three years younger brother, mum and I all hated our house above the shop. There was a horrible, unwelcoming feeling in the living accommodation. I always felt watched and just uncomfortable. My brother had horrible nightmares, wouldn't sleep a night in his own room, but could never articulate why. 
My parents totally redecorated his room in a style he chose, but he still refused to ever sleep in his bedroom. We all chose to stay downstairs in the small room behind the shop, rather than spend any time upstairs as much as possible. I also had a beautifully decorated bedroom upstairs, but night after night I had horrible nightmares about a woman coming into my room and lying down on top of me. I would feel heavier and heavier until I couldn't breathe. I was nine to eleven years old at the time. I never saw this woman in any detail, but I would feel her come in, lay down on me, and crush me until I woke up. Thankfully, after two years we moved out and I put my memories of the woman down to childhood bad dreams or a distorted memory. After we moved out, my dad converted the building into flats and we kept it for years, renting them out. Thirty years have now passed. Last week, my parents were visiting and we got to talking about that house. My mum said how much she hated living there and I agreed. I told them how I used to have horrible, scary dreams about a woman coming into my room and lying on me. My dad looked really shocked. He then told me about one of his tenants who had rented one of the flats from him. He'd chalked him up as a weirdo because he stayed about six months and when he left, he told my dad all about a woman who would come in most nights and lie down on top of him until he felt he couldn't breathe. That was why he was moving out. I know, right? As soon as I read this story, I knew I had to share it with all of you. It's horrid. Quite hard to debunk, too. I think the only way you could is with a sleep paralysis argument, but that only really works if it's the boy. In that case, it's obviously sleep paralysis if it's just him, and clearly he agreed because he hadn't thought about it for 30 years. Until something happened that showed that the, clearly... It's not just sleep paralysis. There's no way you can convince me that two people who haven't spoken as far as we know are having the same bizarrely specific sleep paralysis hallucination, and not really one of the standard ones, in the same flat. No, I'm calling it. This one is a ghost. Now, if you follow me on social media, you'll know that I promised my wife would bring us a deep dive into witch law this episode, but I was sort of incorrect to do so, as she has now explained to me. This story features characters you may recognise from the Pendle Witch Trials, but it is not itself a witch trial. Instead, what this is is a case of supposed demonic possession, and the exorcism attempts and multiple hangings that follow. This case also features John Dee, who you might have heard of, and the valuable 1600s life lesson, it's okay to be Catholic until you get lippy. Allow me to introduce my wife, Charlie, who joins me today to tell us about the Lancashire Seven. All right. Hi. So this starts in February 1594 slash five, which it depends on how you want to place the new year. Yeah. And it is in outside of Tisley, and it's the Starkey family. So Tisley's in Lancashire? Yes. Lancashire. The like. Lancashire Seven. Oh yeah, you said that's what it's called. <laughs> that is obvious. So <laughs> in the name, my bad. Continue. So uh, Starkey family, they live in the the wife's ancestral home was Catholic home and they were quite upset about when they went to move in because they weren't Catholic themselves. Okay. And they have two children, John who is 10 and Anne who is 9. 
And then all of a sudden in February, Anne was taken with a dumpish and heavy countenance and a certain fearful starting and pulling of the body. So what do we think that means? A dumpish and heavy countenance? Is she... Has she, do they mean dumpish as in she's gained weight? Or do they mean dumpish as in she's, like, down in the dumps? What do we think they mean? Da- dumpish and heavy makes me think it was a bit depressed. Yeah, okay. And then what's what's the other thing? A starting and... F- a fearful starting and pulling together of the body. Oh, Like, okay. twitching, I assume. That's what I picture. Okay. So, a week later, as John was going to school one day, he started to shout uncontrollably and started having fits just on the way to school. So he had to come home, which I'm sure he was very sad about. Oh, everyone hates going home from school. Uh Uh-huh. And then, so they paid a doctor to figure out what was going on with the kids because they weren't sure. And today's money was about 30 grand that they were paying oh okay so quite that's a hefty doctor's bill yeah they were trying to just figure out what's wrong but weirdly the apothecaries just couldn't bleed them enough (laughs) so it didn't work so finally they decided to consult a catholic priest despite not being catholics because that is who you go to when you need an exorcism and everyone knows that Mm -hmm. but that didn't help anyway (laughs) so then they conduct they uh, consulted rather with um edmund hartley who was just a, a cunning man who was known around the so a cunning man is kind of similar to say the the grandma in the in the pendle case yeah the, the devis woman which at the time that was kind of the a job mostly for women in higher up families would that would also be their job was to take care of people mm-hmm. but once you kind of got lower down the ranks doing the exact same thing as you would do in a higher status family would get you accused of being a witch so th- is this guy in a lower status position or higher status he i he's he seems to be lower because he doesn't have a like a family home or anything okay but I, I don't know that much about him as a person yeah there won't be that many records which implies he's from a lower yeah. class okay interesting so he stays with the family for a year and a half, apparently controlling the children's fits. And then apparently he starts to get that bad vibes about the dad because he just drops into conversation one day. You shouldn't fire me because I'd be really hard to find if you did fire me. So if you need me again, if the if the fits come back after I'm fired, yeah. I will be hard to find. Don't get too comfy. And there'll be no help. Right, don't get okay. too comfy. And then he is fired. And then... Um, uh, John starts to have fits again, like immediately. He starts. He fell a bleeding. John is the son. Yeah, John is the son. Sorry, he fell a bleeding, mm-hmm. and so they have to go find him. And they they do find him. He wasn't that hard to find. Oh, he lied. I mean, maybe he was on the way to being hard to find, but he wasn't that hard to find yet. So then he demanded a pension of uh, forty shillings a year from the Starkey family, which they gave because they didn't want their children to fall a bleeding anymore. And what do we mean when we say fall a bleeding? Is that I I we... I picture nosebleeds rather than stigmata mm. because I feel like they would have been more specific if it was mm. something very dramatic. Mm. Sometimes little kids just have a lot of nosebleeds though, but it's, it's it can be from an orifice, and we it's very it's spooky. The nose. Yeah. Okay. So uh, then Ed- Edmund got a little too comfy. It's all gone weird for Edmund, and he's decided. Well, I get the forty shillings, so. I should also be able to have a house and acreage to live upon. Uh. And they decide, no, they're not going to do that. Because that is a lot. And they already spent 30 grand on medicine. That Mm. didn't work. So uh, the father of the family, Nicholas Starkey, he gets in touch with John D. And 
sort of tells him what's going on and asks for help. And John Dee just says to consult some clergy and then calls Edmund Hartley to him and tells him off because this is after John Dee has is done has put away the childish things of angel scrying. And yeah, stuff. so John Dee for listeners who don't who aren't super familiar was um sort of a, a royal apothecary and general mystic man and scientist who who Elizabeth was familiar with who would scry for angels um generally investigate the paranormal yeah, but this this he was he was done. With he that was now. done with that. Now he decided it was. He was just a church warden in okay. Manchester, and he wanted to be left alone to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So he he tattles not tattles he like tells him off rather, and Edmund is not happy with any of this. Mm-hmm. So then, on January fourth in fifteen ninety six slash seven. John was reading, John was the little boy, and, quote, something gave him such a blow on the neck that he was suddenly stricken down with a horrible scrike, saying that Satan had broken his neck and lay tormented and pitiful for a space of two hours. And then later that night, he leapt out of bed with a terrible cry that amazed all of the family, that he was tossed and turned and tumbled into the fire and was very fierce like a mad mad like a madman or a mad dog, snatched and bit everyone that he laid hold of with his teeth, not sparing his mother. So, first thing, his neck was supposedly broken and then he's leaping out of bed. Yes. So that's He was very pained for two hours and then the neck broke, break healed. Yeah. So, so that's fine. Okay. And, and then, then he bites everyone, which <laughs> is very... That's like something from a modern exorcism film. Yeah. He's biting all of his family. He's He's twisting and throwing himself around the room yeah and he even bit his mom so you know it's serious business yeah okay so Anne immediately started fitting again as well she fell into that as well and then a friend of the or not a friend of the family a relative a family relative a relative of the family we're fine with that. <laughs> the relative of the family oh my god margaret byram was was saying and then Edmund Hartley, in her presence, had a had one of these like demonic seeming seizures. So she had to hold him and comfort him and say nice things to him while this was happening. <laughs> I don't know why because they didn't seem to do this with the children. <laughs> and then once Edmund tells this pretty lady, that's the only thing that will help mm-hmm. is if you hold me and say nice things. Weirdly, to me. that's what helps me. <laughs> and then when she or when he came to, she started immediately doing the same thing and having fits, and she nicknamed and tormented everyone present she started cursing all of them and then started like hitting hitting edmund and getting all mad at him and yelling at him in particular and okay and then there was the the thought that he and he had kissed her and given her the devil oh so so she she might be possessed by the devil but she might also be yelling at him and hitting him because he kissed her without her consent or he was they had had a relationship and it she was, was just angry with him because, in the context of a relationship because no one under and no one is aware of any of these fun facts outside of it so it just looks like yeah. she's gone mad all of a sudden yeah. and obviously when you're the guest in the house you're not going to be like sorry i've been sleeping with that other guy <laughs> that's why i had a freak out he was a bad egg yeah so she, like, kind of gets cured. She stops having the fits and stops being as immediate about it, but then says that every time she closes her eyes, she can see Edmund, which, again, affair. And then also feels like she's always being, like, pulled towards the fire when she closes her eyes. Interesting. Which sounds like a romantic poet. <laughs> 
does sound kind of Keatsian. Yeah. So all of this, all of this is going on. Normal stuff. They also have three children that there's that are staying with them who are being tutored by the dad. So not relatives, just children who just, are staying for the purpose of tutoring. Yeah, so okay. being taught to read and stuff, I assume. So Margaret and Ellen, or Elizabeth, same name, or same person, different names. Yeah. We'll go with Elizabeth because the other person's name is kind of similar. So Margaret's 14, and then there's Elizabeth, who's 10, and then there's Eleanor, who is 12. And then these three start having fits at this, this point. They join in. Okay. And then they all fell a-tumbling, quote-unquote, after which they would lay speechless, senseless, and lay as if dead. And they would all bark and howl and scream together, like a chorus. That is creepy, but also I do think if in my primary school, or even the younger years in my high school, there had been a phase where a few kids started barking, howling, and throwing themselves around the room, and then laying on the ground, playing dead, probably we all would have joined in for the sake of attention and peer pressure right it it, it it reminds me of in the 90s like everyone pretending they had Tourette's for for attention I just have to keep swearing I can't help it so it, it makes me wonder that yeah. that does give me pause when it's right. kids if you are like a, a repressed little kid and you're in this new house with these new people you don't really know and you miss your mom and you, your dad and then all of a sudden these these other kids are getting all this attention and you Why? want to ingratiate yourself with your new like almost adopted siblings and you want to be on their good side so if you join in their game right then clearly that that'll that'll warm them to you yeah. so everything will be great yeah so it does give me pause so then as as this continued they um began to exp- to have miraculous abilities so Elizabeth began to be very good at sewing. That beyond, is suspicious. Beyond her capabilities. <laughs> and then Eleanor could uh, have a an hourglass and whenever it needed to tur- be turned, she she knew. She knew without looking. Without looking. Yeah. She could just tell every 15 minutes would pass. She that was does, really good at spatial awareness. It does sound awareness. like she was just, yeah. I she think just that's had spatial a good awareness. Sense of time. But, yeah. Uh, so also John, for some reason, preached about the government and how the queen should be protected and then said later he didn't remember doing that that doesn't sound very demonic i just love the queen it sort of aligns the demon with protestants which is not a great vibe that's not these are these people maybe that's why maybe that's why he recanted that one because that was a bit oh i don't remember it yeah that's (laughs) weird okay So then the children start to refer to their demons as their lads which i love yeah that's amazing so uh, one of the girls would discuss her lad and say that he would bring her all manner of fine clothes, like petticoats of the best silk, a French body, not of whalebone, but of horn, and a gown of black wrought velvet. But did she have these gifts to show? Or did she mean she would. He will bring them in future? She will own them. I see. That. See, I want to believe the spookier parts of this case, but that does sound like... A little girl, a little going, girl away, like, going, I'm going to have really nice dresses when I grow up. Yeah, <laughs> no, that doesn't sell anything for me. And then for some reason, and another thing that was noted as spooky is they would all go into the garden and each grab a leaf and they'd all put it back in the house and it was always the same kind of leaf, but they they did it separately in. <laughs> what? They just, <laughs> they went outside and all picked the same leaf from the same tree and that was special. And they all put it inside and it was the same leaf every time. 
they don't know how many how many trees of different species were in the garden but i just i mean probably a lot for that kind of garden on like a fancy estate but (laughs) unless the parents were tailing the kids around the garden i don't see why we wouldn't just assume that they all just picked the leaves together or one kid picked three leaves or like and shared them. you're assuming none of the children are giraffes. So there's a certain height level that they can reach if it's not because <laughs> it's not the autumn. So so it's going to be a specific kind of tree that they go to. But yeah. every time, every time is the same one, and that really creeped the parents out. That's fun. I wonder. There must be more to it than just. I know that's that's what was recorded, and yeah. I'm sure there was something more, or yeah. else these were the most gullible parents, which I'm, <laughs> you know, maybe you know, they could be the most gullible parents. People people will be (laughs) and then they also my favorite thing is that they would play games together and ignore the adults (laughs) they would play cards and sing songs and dance and they just wouldn't attend the adults at all when they would talk to them evil so they were kids yeah they they were violently children kids who found an excuse to be (laughs) naughty and stuck with it oh okay yeah and then they said they also began to answer questions in latin which none of them had been taught but they are living in Lancashire, and that's a heavily Catholic area at the time, and masses were done in Latin at the time. Ah. So if you had ever heard anything like that from passersby, all your prayers that you would say colloquially, if you were Catholic, were in Latin, in, ah. or piecemeal Latin, enough that you could probably spook somebody who thought you shouldn't know any Latin. Yeah. But okay. it's just the virtue of being in Lancashire. And then that's a that's a superstition that's carried over into modern exorcisms mm-hmm. because you always get that. But nowadays, it really is like, uh, what's the word? It's it's much more unusual it is to actually speak Latin when like a, a normal working class kid in America speaks Latin. Yeah, is not startling in Lancashire in the fifteen hundreds. No, no, okay. <laughs> Just so we have that established. <laughs> and then they said they also began blaspheming God and the Bible and saying filthy and unsavory things and contorting their faces and heaving and lifting their bodies and swelling up their bellies. I assume pushing out their bellies. I Okay. Very That spooky. again does give me sort of nineties schoolyard vibes, but Yeah, very offensive just being horrible little monsters. Being children. like a little edgelord basically. <laughs> right. Except you found an excuse. Again different era yeah <laughs> now you're an exorcist uh, you're a child in need of an exorcism yeah. instead of just an edge lord yeah so uh margaret byron who was the the guest of the house who had been with edmund hartley briefly she decided to go home with him for some reason so clearly she wasn't super afraid of him <laughs> and on the on the trip which was seven miles she had ten fits ten fits paroxysms Oh, was she in a carriage alone with him? I mean, it didn't specify. It just said on the way she had 10 fits with him. So it does sort of sound like like he was curing her hysteria. Oh, but... <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Before this podcast evolves into filth, we'll leave it there. But yeah, there's a, there, there is an explanation for that. <laughs> <laughs> so one day, uh, John D's curate comes... To visit all of them and say prayers for her because of her terrible time. That the she's terrible having. time she had in that carriage uh-huh. where she had ten fits. Paroxysms. And <laughs> so he he asks Edmund, what have you been doing to help her? And he says he's been praying over her. And then he asks her 
asks him rather to say the Lord's Prayer, and he fumbles it. Oh no! Immediately he goes to the justices of the peace and tattles, says he's been doing witchcraft. Oh no! Because he fumbled, but anyone can fumble the Lord's Prayer under pressure. You're under. I mean, you would be saying it multiple times a day, probably. So it is a bit. That is a bit weird. It is a bit sus. Probably also he just wasn't the most religious person, yeah. and he was just doing his little witchy yeah charms which are like prayers but not quite yeah so the justice of the peace goes to the starkey household and to gather evidence and they start trying to talk to the children and the children all seem great and they're not having fits and they're asking like oh how how are how 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 is edmund hartley to you guys what happened and they all seem normal and then all of a sudden they started being thrown backwards very dramatically and it was all terrible. They became speechless and fell down. And... They were being thrown around by an unseen force, or yeah, they were like, throwing themselves around. I, I mean, I mean, that's, I, that's... realistically they were throwing themselves around. Yeah. But how did it appear? Is this like an Enfield thing where they think they're being thrown by something else? Yeah, oh. yeah. And then they also go to speak to Jane Ashton, who was a maid at the time mm-hmm. in the household, and she she wouldn't respond to them and. She started to howl and bark, and then the kids were like, "Oh, you're you're suddenly affected by all of this because you they've you've been asked about him, whereas you never mentioned him before." This was the first time she shows up in the story. Oh, weird! So they ask her about it, and then she freaks out. Worth noting, she is has a swollen belly at this whole time, not just sticking her belly out, and she was oh. also rumored to have been having an affair with Hartley, so. <laughs> This guy gets around. Yes, he's having a great time. So she's not in this story at all before now. No. She presumably isn't behaving as if she's possessed. No. Then they ask her about him and she just flips To give out. testimony and she immediately starts barking and howling and stuff. So she doesn't have to give testimony, but in doing so kind of gives testimony. Yeah. Um, presumably without meaning to. Or intentionally if she's really mad at him, I suppose. I would, I would think so, but I think you then you would also just say... Yeah. Can't believe what witchcraft he's done. He told me about it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Interesting. I wonder if there is, there is some level of hysteria, presumably, and not all just people playing games. Yeah, I'm sure with the kids especially, it's because they're all like 14 to 9. Mm. Like, it's all, that's all the kind of age where you want to fit in and you're just with these random little people. Yeah. So you have to do what you can to make sure that you're comfortable because you're stuck with them. Even the kids were being tutored. Their parents were paying for them to stay there. They couldn't leave. But it's just such an outlandish reaction for a maid who has otherwise acted normally to just start barking and howling. Mm-hmm. It's quite an extreme thing to do to get out of asking, que- answering questions. Right. Like... It makes you wonder if there is a level of hysteria that she is also... Yeah. Hmm. So, Interesting. He... <laughs> He is sent to Lancaster Jail, and he's allowed to go back to the house for some reason very kindly and pick up his stuff because he didn't have his stuff with him. Oh. And then all of the kids... That seems just so out of character for the yeah, justice system. Yeah, I, I don't know. Okay. But he gets it, and all of the kids run up to him and start hitting him, quote-unquote, very violent and outrageous fits, and they wanted to strike him, but were forcibly restrained. So That's weird, isn't the it? The children all run to him. And then are forcibly restrained. Oh. But it doesn't it doesn't say they did hit him. It so said maybe, they had violent and outrageous fits. So were they just running to him their friend? It could have like that, and, and the adult yeah. interpreted as 
they want to hit him or something, yeah. whereas they're just upset because he's going to jail. Yeah, could be, could be. So, this didn't impact the kids. They were just as bad. Uh, in one instance, the children said that an angel in the form of a dove had come down from God, and they started. They said that they had to follow it to heaven through a little hole under their beds or through a wall. So all four of them one morning spent time on their knees before fleeing from the families and neighbors, running from room to room and calling them devils. Because they were laid and looking for the hole to go to God. Oh. So that's fun. Normal. Normal stuff. And then Eleanor and Elizabeth started having fits, but they would time them beforehand. Say, I'm going to have a fit for 15 minutes now. <laughs> what? And that was really spooky. Now, I don't think that's how exorcisms work. No. I don't think that's how possession works. Sorry, they this were... isn't an exorcism yet. But I don't <laughs> they think were very kind works. about it. They were, the demons were very thoughtful. It just doesn't seem right. <laughs> I will say. Fit. Like many famous possession cases, this just has a ring of bullshit about it. <laughs> and so, Margaret... All over in Salford in her home, missing Edmund Hartley and being angry, uh, presumably. She claims that she was visited by various demons in differing forms, including a dwarf dwarf with half a face, long yeah. shaggy hair, and black cloven feet. Oh, that it's, is actually spooky. And said it would carry her away if she prayed. Ooh. There was a great black dog, classic. Yeah. A big black cat and a classic. mouse all appeared one after the other, each one throwing her down to the ground and depriving her of her senses. The mouse threw her down to the ground? I would like a, I would like a detailed explanation for Margaret about that, what that means. Oh my god, I love it. The mouse threw her on the ground? Yes. I love that. Okay. Mighty Mouse? Yes. Yeah, okay. Magnus Power Mouse? Yes. <laughs> so, that said that all of her senses were deprived. She couldn't eat or drink or sleep or anything. She was having a terrible time because of these... Uh, mice <laughs> <laughs> okay so on one occasion elizabeth and eleanor wouldn't speak for three days they would only speak to each other and their demons their lads okay and then at last they said that their their lads would let them eat and the, but they could only have posset of sour milk a posset of sour milk rather and toast so they're having a sad time and then neither of them could keep the food or drink down, though. And then one of the girls remarked, Thou naughty lad, thou makes us sick, for thou knowest the preachers will come shortly. Interesting. And then, because the plans were already a-brewing to bring in somebody else, because yep. Edmund Hartley was busy in jail. Yep. And he he was in jail, and when the Assizes came around to convict him, well, you know, to try him, but... Yeah, they. One of the things that was brought up was something that hadn't been brought up until then, and hadn't wasn't why he was arrested in the first place, but was that at one point he and Nicholas Starkey had been traveling, and Starkey got ill, and Edmund said, "Come out to this copse with me and stand in this circle, and I'll draw a bunch of crosses, and then you stamp out the circle, and you'll be cured." Which is just like traditional witchcraft lore, and but Nicholas wouldn't do it he thought that was too witchy and apparently that was fine for the kids whatever he was doing with the kids oh he great. was allowed to do it with the kids and also like with... he didn't like it at the time but again he didn't tell anybody yeah at the time but this was the thing that was proven that was used to prove that hartley was in fact a witch 
because the kids had been fitting and stuff before he'd shown up, so that was a little iffy. But yeah. suddenly this other story, well, that's the thing. That's actual, like, ritualistic hedge witchery yeah. in a way that... That is the kind is... of stuff that will definitely get you into yeah. trouble. So he ends up being hanged twice. Explain. Uh, the rope broke the first time. Whoa. He repented, and then they just hanged him again. What? You'd think they would transport you at that point. Yeah, but... once you've repented, you'd think you're off to the new also, world. Also, the rope broke. Surely that's God saying. No, we don't, we don't care what God says if it's against what the court wants. <laughs> that's really strange. Why did, do we know why the rope broke? Is, there's no. no record of that. No, just, just a faulty rope. The rope broke. A faulty rope or actually in league with Divine intervention or... Okay. Not divine intervention. Yeah, infernal Evil? intervention. Infernal intervention, there Interesting. we go. Interesting, okay. So, well, that's sad that they rehanged him. Yeah, it's rough. He was just a player. Yeah. So, the Starkeys still have these kids at home that they have to deal with. And now they're made and the, the family friend. It's all a whole thing. So, Nicholas decides that he wants to talk to John D again. Because John D is his favorite person. <laughs> he's the biggest fan apparently but he goes to johnny's house and john d i don't know if he's not there they don't mention if they can they made contact at this point but john d's butler tells him oh i know a guy he he exercised my my nephew so i'll get you in contact with him so they get in contact with a man named john daryl who was like a known quantity at the time he was a famous exorcist like in in those circles in which exorcists were famous <laughs> so okay. it's a limited circle they were from the midlands i can't remember where exactly okay so they have to start a letter writing campaign because apparently john daryl doesn't want to come and be involved in <laughs> any of this john d wrote to him and said oh my god do not go <laughs> Well, he had, he Nicholas Sturkey actually had John D. write a letter on his behalf, oh. but he had to convince him to write it. So yeah. John D. clearly didn't want to be involved in this. I don't think this. John D. is a big fan of, of Nicholas Sturkey. They will not leave him alone. Yeah, and... I, I think he, this is his stalker fan, and he, yeah. he's saying to the butler, please, can you just deal with him? I he's don't just, want to. just Nicholas Sturkey standing outside their door in the rain, knocking on the windows. <laughs> please let me in. My children are possessed. So finally, John Darrell agrees. And they come up, uh, he hires also a pastor from Derbyshire to help, mm-hmm. named George Moore. And they arrived in March of 1597, and they found that the children were fine, they were all good. They sent for the other kids, and they were all welcomed and said hello. And then again, this fitting started. They started throwing themselves to the ground and being tossed around. And mm-hmm. Jane Ashton shows up again and starts this howling. Is the maid. Yes. Okay. Starts howling and has a swollen belly. The belly's still swollen. Yeah. Okay. It has. This hasn't gone away. So uh, he began to preach to John and Anne, who were the Starkey children, while Nicholas held them, and they both cried. And John cast down on the bed with stomach pain and heart pain. And when the Bible was quoted at him, he called it, dun, 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 bibble babble, <laughs> Bible babble. So. How dare he? It was very shocking at the time. No, I know. Nowadays, harmless. In those days, oh, fuck, call the priest. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the clergyman, at this point, left and had to reformulate a game plan. What? Because it was. Bibble just, babble was just too it, much It was the him. straw that broke the camel's back. They had to leave. Okay. So they go outside and say, okay, we're going to get another priest. We can't do this ourselves. We have to get the local man involved. <laughs> because of bibble babble? Bibble babble was just a step too far, man. <laughs> 
So they, for some reason also, later that night, they come in and do the exact same thing, and the exact same thing happens, and they stop. And (laughs) so then the next day... I don't know why they came back. Like, the safe word to stop an exorcism is bibble babble. babble. Interesting. So, so the next day, they all get ready to start start their preaching. The three men now with the new guy involved named Mr. Dickens. <laughs> the na- And then there's 50 neighbors in the house watching because exercising is a classic neighbor activity. Yeah. Every, everybody was all up in each other's business. Whether yeah. you were having babies or having fights, everyone was there watching laughing there's having, nothing else to having do. a great time yeah if they could have had popcorn they would have <laughs> so at seven o'clock mr dickens began the giving the first sermon and then all seven of the people who had been possessed started roaring and belling and had to be held down and they struck themselves and pulled their own hair and cried out and margaret kept saying i must be gone i must be gone whether shall i go whether shall i go i will not die i will not die over and over again and then later she said I cannot tarry. I cannot tarry. I am too hot. I am too hot. Let me go. Let me go. Which doesn't sound super creepy if you're being held down while you're flailing. Yeah. And then Jane Ashton, who was the maid, seemed to be having the worst of all the fits. She, I assume just because she was an adult and harder to control. So they had to like take her into a separate room and have her exercise separately by uh, Daryl and Dickens while the other guy worked on um, the children because they were easier to handle with the other adults they're holding them down mm-hmm. so they they all had to try to exercise these kids and just lots of bible reading and lots of praying and then lots of bibble babble lots of bibble babble happening the dickens when dickens returned the six rose up minus jane ashton rose up one after the other and said that they were free of their evil spirits they leapt danced and praised god Okay. Uh, more warned them that Satan would try to re-enter them, but that they were all strong enough and that they sh- they would be able to resist. But by this this time, it was like 5 or 6 a.m. This all started at 7 in the morning, remember? Whew. And Jane also wasn't, wasn't better. <laughs> this comes later. So the six who have been, who have been, have their demons cast off, mm-hmm. they give accounts of what they look like. Not everybody, but... So Margaret says that hers came out of her throat and had a crow's head i love that just it came a head. out of her throat just a crow's head that's amazing elizabeth's was a hedgehog john <laughs> wait elizabeth's was a hedgehog yes <laughs> that's adorable they, that's not threatening at all they would suck the milk from cows and oh yeah they thought hedgehogs were evil didn't they yeah they you would they were like... you would get a like a penny if you would give a hedgehog body to the to the constable yes. because they would suck the milk from cows they thought and, they were evil and, yeah. and and would murder cows okay yeah adorable but wicked not to them Mm-mm. okay so john's was a hunchback okay and Anne's was Quote, a foul, ugly man with a white beard and a hunch on his chest. A hunch chest? Yes, not a hunchback. He, she couldn't do that because she didn't want to copy. I've got a hunch chest. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what that means. Is that like pigeon chested? I guess. Okay. Interesting. So those are the two Starkey children who hate the disabled. <laughs> right? The others are like animals. It was these... a hedgehog. <laughs> and these guys just fucking hate ugly people. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, John Darrell ends up ha- still working on Jane Ashton, who is having a full mental breakdown until four in the morning when finally she has been delivered. Mm-hmm. And then he later professed regret that he couldn't watch the others be delivered because he was busy with Jane Ashton. Stupid Jane. Um, 
how was she, how did it how was she delivered same it, way as the others but it took it longer? longer it took like eight hours longer for her god was she just in labor is this just, <laughs> just giving birth and then she had a demon baby okay um so they all they all fell asleep and had a great time and they woke up and said that the demons had actually come to them though and said that they would come back into their bodies and they said i'll give you some gold if i will if you'll let me and they said no because they're such good kids that's good well done them so when jane was delivered she says she was starting to get tired evidently during the exorcism and says nay for god's sake leave me not yet stick to it a little longer and you shall see he will depart shortly okay uh and then she rose up and thanked god and then left okay that's kind of a a, a, a damp squib of an ending hold on just a minute hold on just a minute i feel it coming i'm better goodbye <laughs> praise god <laughs> so that was that was a bit of a bummer so then after that, John Darrell returned home and then he became involved in another exorcism case. Because again, this was his bag. But unfortunately, this one didn't have the best response, the best outcome, because this little kid eventually ends up telling people John Darrell has been coaching him. Oh, coaching and, him how to seem possessed? Yes. <gasps> oh. That he had been telling him everything and it was it was all made up. It was all terrible. And so they arrest John Darrell. And Nicholas Darkey actually writes a letter to the to the uh, police to say, well, he did fix my kids, though. Mine was real. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry about this liar. But mine was a real thing. But he does end up arrested and in jail. He oh, ends up jailed. Oh dear. He ends up getting out of jail. I I don't remember exactly the, the year he ends up getting out of jail. But new laws were passed as a direct result. And the law was... Uh, banned unauthorized exorcisms oh really because you can't be having that because so that cast doubt on every other exorcism he performed you would think but but... of course these predate his arrival on the scene yeah so then you wonder who was coaching because i don't i don't believe this was a genuine case of possession i'm not i'm not saying possession doesn't exist in some cases but this doesn't seem genuine there's too much about it that is uh, seems like the performance of little kids who want attention. But I wonder who coached them to begin with. Although the fact that Nicholas Starkey was such a big fan of John D makes me wonder if he coached them to begin with. Please, I just want a reason to write to John D. <laughs> I'm begging you. I want to meet my hero. So, they also forbade all fasts, because that was part of the exorcism. You would You would fast while you were exercising. Okay. So that was illegal now. It's also a very Catholic thing, I suppose, so it's it's another way to it was also, keep Catholicism. It was also a form of witchcraft that witches would uh-huh. use, a black fast, which was, uh-huh. you wouldn't eat, but you'd put all your intention into evil deeds. Okay. And then a second law made it a capital offense to conjure up spirits, just also, yeah. based on this. That seems fair. <laughs> <laughs> and then this was a fairly popular case, and Ben Johnson referred to it in his, his lovely little play, The Devil is an Ass. Yep, I know that play. Yeah, and he referred to uh, Little Daryl's tricks with the boy O'Burton and the Seven in Lancashire and Summers at Nottingham. Summers at Nottingham was the one that got uh, Daryl arrested at the end. Ah. So, little 
little little, little tricks, little little references to popular culture at the time that no nobody gets now. Yeah. But now you do. Now we get it. Now if you happen to see that play, the, <laughs> the Devil, the is, devil an is an Ass by Ben Johnson, then you will understand that reference. Yeah, and then. How is this connect? This there's people in this who then later resurface. Yes. in the famous Pendle Witch trial. Yes. So Nicholas Starkey was the cousin of Roger Knoll, who was the Justice of the Peace of Lancaster at the time. It at the first witch trials in 1612. Roger Knoll very involved. In yeah, the, he was the, the one who pursued pursued the entire issue basically. Mm. He he wanted uh, King James's approval on Lancashire because, like I said, Lancashire was kind of like backwards like and a Catholic rural backwater. and Catholic and yeah. lots of bad stuff. And then uh, the little kid John was later the Justice of the Peace during um, the Second Pendle Trials in the 1630s. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's yeah, really interesting. So he grows up away from his possession and he he doesn't go after them the way that Roger Noel no. does in the second one the second one is more the the little kid is going all around town telling everybody I've seen all these witches until finally the law has to do something because yeah. they're literally touring churches telling everybody what 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 all witches they have seen yeah so it's it was kind of like they were more pressed into they were forced into a corner because they were looking quite bad for just ignoring all of this yeah. stuff when all of the uh, preachers were saying no this is totally real then it's like you're in that place so it wasn't necessarily out of spite that he might have done no, it but no but that's interesting that it has that connection yeah of course the Pendle witches, as most people know by now, were not witches. No matter how much you love the paranormal and believe in witchcraft, that is a case where they were, in fact, Catholics. <laughs> and uh, uh, women who did medicine. Yeah. So, If they'd had the privilege of being in a nice house, it all would have been fine. It would have mm -hmm. shaken out just fine. Mm -hmm. they, they were just poor, and that, mm -hmm. that, was, that was all that was needed to kill them. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was really interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Um, disclaimer for my listeners who are wondering what's happened to my voice. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm i a bit of a chameleon. It comes from being autistic. And when I am around my American wife, my voice goes a bit American. It's really embarrassing and I can't help it. <laughs> um, please don't write me angry emails about it. I'm not being a poser. It's uh, I'm just <laughs> I'm just autistic. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, that was really interesting. Thank you for joining us. You I know are this is your first ever sort of podcast or recorded appearance anywhere, and I yeah. know you were nervous. Yeah. So I'm I'm really grateful to you for joining us, and I hope you will come and tell us about witch law again. Well, hopefully your listeners enjoy this little interlude and. I will come back upon popular demand. <laughs> okay, there you go then. Uh, you can uh, let me know that you want more Charlie. Don't let me know if you don't want more Charlie. <laughs> I don't want to know that. She's my wife. <laughs> so uh, thank you for listening. And now we will have one more little story and conclude this week's episode. Thank you. Our final story is a very short one from a nurse who tells us, One night I was on night duty taking around the drugs cart. 
As I was placing a patient's medication in a cup ready to administer, a woman's voice, very clearly, with some urgency, whispered to me, Check again. Check again. I quickly turned around, but there was no one else but me on the ward. Uh, shaking, I checked the drugs I'd got ready, only to discover that I'd made a mistake, and, if I hadn't been warned, this actually could have been life-threatening for the patient. From that moment on, I triple-checked, every time. Spooky stuff, nurse. Thank you for submitting that short story. If you have any other weird tales from the hospital, please do send them over. That concludes tonight's episode of Frightened Kingdom. Thank you to everyone who sent their stories. Thank you to Charlie for sharing her insight on the Lancashire 7. And thank you, listener, for joining us. I've had a great time. I hope you have. If you got something from this episode, please do remember to rate, review, and subscribe so that I can keep making them. Uh, connect with me on social media. Send me those stories. You have two weeks from today to submit your stories for inclusion in the next episode. I'll see you then. Good night. <laughs>